0: This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you everyone around the world who tunes in. appreciate your notes. Keep suggesting guests. I try to Put each one on a pad here. We have guest ideas. And also, I love that you share your stories with me. We're going to talk about stories today. I have a wonderful guest who's written a couple books, and his latest book really touched me. It's called Someday is Today. What a title. And this is an easy read and very deep 22 simple, actionable ways to propel your creative life. It's a must read if you want to write and create, or really, I think just be more creative in your life. It's an honor to welcome to the family, Mister Matthew Dix. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. I
1: really appreciate it. How are you feeling today in the world?
0: I feel pretty good about the world today. Yeah, I'm back from vacation. It's nice to be home, so I'm I'm doing well. Thanks.
1: Feeling creative?
0: Yeah, actually, I I was feeling creative this morning uh, when I when I got up and jumped into something. It worked out really well.
1: Well, before we get in the book and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, You had a near-death experience, and I wanted to ask you about it, if you don't mind sharing, and how that changed you. We've had a lot of guests that have had these type of experiences, and the people always respond to it, I think. And if you don't mind, uh, can you tell us what happened? Yeah,
0: sure. I I mean, oddly, I had three. Oh my Lord. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, two were sort of irrelevant in terms of the way I live my life. But when I was 12, I was stung by a bee and not knowing that I was allergic and finding myself home alone, I uh, I, you know, ended up on the floor and when the paramedics broke the door down and finally made it to me, I wasn't breathing and my heart wasn't beating. So they used CPR to restore my life. And uh, then when I was 17, I went through the windshield of a Datsun B210 in a head-on collision. And once again, uh, in the back of an ambulance, I stopped breathing and my heart stopped beating and paramedics, uh, use CPR to restore my life. Uh, oddly, those did not change the course of my life in terms of uh, being a more productive and effective human being, though. So, when I was 21, I was managing a McDonald's in Brockton, Massachusetts, sort of this tough town. And uh, I was at the safe. It was after the store had closed at night, you know, close to midnight and uh, i was counting the money the receipts from the day when i heard glass break and i knew you know i knew bad things were going to happen the police had come to my restaurant about a week before and warned me that there was a team of men that were robbing stores and a man actually in the taco bell that i could see from my drive-through window one of their employees had been shot and killed during one of these robberies so when i heard the glass break i i knew i was in trouble and when they got to the office, they found me and uh, they, my, they had my employees and they put us all on the floor and they began emptying the safe and they found a box, sort of a box built into the safe at the bottom, a compartment. And I didn't have the key to the compartment. There was a plaque on the on the compartment that said, manager does not have key. It was the owner's compartment and it's where most of the money was. And uh, they didn't believe me that I couldn't open it. So you know, they beat me. And when I still wouldn't open the compartment, uh, one of them pushed my head onto the floor and put a gun to my head and said he was gonna count back from three and then shoot me in the head if I didn't open the safe. And, you know, sort of in in those seconds, the seconds that I thought were truly the end of my life, you know, the astounding thing to me was that I didn't feel any fear or anger, or even sadness for what was happening, the only feeling I was consumed with was regret, you know, regret over what I hadn't accomplished. You know, I was 21 or 22 at the time and I had done nothing essentially in terms of making dreams come true. And I just couldn't believe that this was gonna be it, that all the things I wanted to do were never going to happen. And and that sort of is the reason why those first two times that you know, paramedics needed to restore my life. They sort of didn't have an impact on me because in both of those cases, I closed my eyes, not knowing that I was going to stop breathing and my heart would stop beating. You know, both times I, I didn't close my eyes thinking this is it, I'm going to die. And so it wasn't until I actually had a moment of awareness, you know, where I truly believed I had reached the end of my life that suddenly everything sort of changed for me.
1: Do you feel your soul was trying to send you a message so you would live out your higher calling?
0: Um, no, I mean, I wish I was that spiritual, but uh, <laughs> I'm not. And I, I want to be, but I'm not. You know, I really think that, uh, you know, I got lucky in like the worst way possible. I would never wish it upon anyone truly. You know, I couldn't have told you that story just a few years ago. It took me 15 years of therapy to get past the uh, PTSD that I still struggle with to this day. But it was a pivot point in my life. You know, in an odd way, it transformed the way I have lived my life since and for the better, 100%. So, you know, my hope is always that, you know, people who read my book or listen to my audiobook or just get to know me, my hope is that they never have to experience anything like what I experienced, but that they can take the lesson from my experience and do something with it.
1: Yes. And that way they don't have to suffer, they can cut that step out. Matthew, why do you think people behave that way? Why would somebody want to kill some innocent guy at a burger place just to get money and have so little regard for life in general?
0: You know, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons, but I I tend to think that it's because they have so little regard for their own life, probably because of circumstances you know, that they have been forced to live in, you know, when you live in a family or a community or a country, wherever you are, that sort of disregards your life for whatever reason, or doesn't seem to value it very much. It is hard to value other people's lives, I think, or it is harder. I also think that desperation, um, can do terrible things to people too. So I think it was a moment of desperation for them and yeah, it was, it was terrible i mean there is genuinely evil people in the world too and i just think that sometimes that is the case unfortunately
1: in telling these stories you're reminding me of the importance of storytelling and stories why are stories so important
0: well I, I you know i could talk for hours on the importance of it but i think i think the thing that i find most important about my storytelling is that when we share stories about our lives particularly you know the the less the less lovely moments of our lives, you know, when we when we are honest and authentic and vulnerable. And when we talk about our failures and our, you know, our, our shame and our embarrassments, I think what happens to people, I've seen it happen, is that people feel better about their own condition and feel closer to another human being as a result. And so I often tell people I'm the bearer of more secrets than you could begin to imagine. Because I, I go to New York, I tell a story on a stage and then I'm overwhelmed by people who want to tell me stories about their lives tell me secrets from their lives that have nothing to do with the story that I just told on stage but suddenly see me as someone who can manage vulnerability and authenticity and someone who can be trusted just by the sharing of a story that most people might not share
1: i'm sure because you're so authentic and honest it gives the people permission to approach you and share equally deeply and authentically.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. Just before the pandemic, uh, I told a story about sort of bad parenting and I stepped off the stage and a woman came up to me and she grabbed me. People touch me all the time. They feel like they know me, even though I have never met them. They hear me tell stories and they're always get their hands on me. And so she pulls me in and she, she, before she even introduces herself to me, she says, every time I go into someone's house, even my own mother's house, I have to steal something. And then she pulls me in really close and whisper yells at me. She says, you're the first person I've ever told that to. And she was probably in her 40s, you know, so she had been living with what is mental illness, essentially, for a very long time, and then saw a random man on stage admit to a failing blunder, a parenting blunder, you know, a moment of failure for me, and decide he's the one I can trust. And that happens to me all the time. So... You know, I think there's a lot of value in storytelling in terms of personal growth. You know, I think we can really do a lot of work for ourselves in telling our own stories. But I think the more important thing that we do is we help the people around us by telling them.
1: And I have found that like everything, creativity is an energy and it longs and looks to be expressed and released.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, you know, I think that not everyone is able to see that in themselves. And I also think that sometimes that word creativity. Sort of gets a a narrow scope you know i think that if you want to start a vegetable garden in your backyard and you're going to grow you know flowers and vegetables i think that's incredibly creative actually it's beyond any creativity that i'm currently capable of expressing but i think when people say creativity they often think painting sculpting writing singing acting and i i think that you know if you're If your goal, if your creative goal is to watch the 100 greatest films of all time on the Criterion channel and have conversations with your partner about each one of them, I think that is a deeply creative way to spend your time. But I think it gets discounted often. And so people say, oh, I'm not that creative when really they're doing amazing things in their life or or perhaps could be doing amazing things in their life if they would just expand their view of what creativity can be.
1: Why does so many people or most people need permission, it seems? As first, I would say mostly from themselves. They don't realize it. But a lot of times it's got to be an outward permission. I've written books. I've had countless people approach me, write me, and tell me they want to write a book. And I always say, do it, do it. Not everybody does. But I say, don't even try to write a book. Just go write. But it's like they needed somebody to just tell them, yes, you can, or I give you permission to do that.
0: Yeah, I think it's really hard for people. I think it's a combination of either they haven't had someone in their life that is encouraging, and I think that's important, or even worse, they had someone in their life who was discouraging, you know, it only takes one teacher to tell someone they're not a good writer to sort of stomp on that. And I think that can happen in all realms of creativity. I also think that people really struggle with perfection. The idea that if it's not perfect, I can't dare to put it in the world because someone might say something negative about it and I might not be able to handle that level of negativity. And so, you know, I think if people would release the idea that perfection is required or that people are even paying attention to the degree they think they are, you know, when we can let go of all that and we accept the fact that we're not for everyone so that what I put into the world might be right for some people and not right for other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. When we let go of those things, I think we can allow ourselves to be more creative.
1: What are some of the blocks, the most common ones? You talked about perfectionism. I know that I struggled with that earlier in life that you're the critic is in the room and you can't even get out of the gate. Talk about that, but also just a lot of the other common blocks.
0: You know, the the spotlight effect is something that I am always fascinated with, and I think it's a, a terrible thing for people. You know, it's this it's this principle that's sort of been studied by social scientists where we just think people are looking at us more than they are or paying attention to us. They do these studies where they'll send a college student into a classroom wearing the most outrageous shirt they can find. And they'll have that student sit right in the middle of class. And at the end of the class, they'll ask that student, how many people do you think noticed what you were wearing? And they'll say, you know, most or 75%. And then they'll quiz the class and say, who noticed this shirt? And almost no one does. But we think that's the case. You know, we we move through our lives sometimes based upon our hair. You know, someone will say, I'm having a good hair day, so I feel good. And they've done research on this. Nobody knows if you're having a good hair day or a bad hair day. Like no one ever notices it except for you. And yet you allow it to change your disposition. And so we just sort of assume that if we're making something that a lot of people are going to look at it and therefore it must be ideal. You know, I was working with a a corporate executive who's looking to put out a newsletter and she wanted to get a, a bunch of weeks ahead. You know, she said, because what happens if a Monday comes and I don't have content to put out there? And I said, do you really think people are waiting by their email at 8 a.m. on Monday, hoping that it arrives? Like, if it doesn't arrive, nobody cares. They just keep moving on with their life. And then you give it to them the next week and they go, oh, there she is again. But that's what her attitude was. She thought, like, someone's going to schedule your newsletter. Um, and I had to get her to understand that, like, no one is tied to your life in the way you think they are. No one cares. The way I got her to rethink it was I asked her when the last time she went to a wedding was, you know, I had been like six months before. And I said, did you put some thought into what you were wearing? And she said, yeah, she, she really, you know, she bought a new dress because she wanted to look good. And I said, can you tell me anything that anyone else was wearing that day at the wedding? And she couldn't. And I said, do you think anyone remembers what you were wearing? Do you think you're so special that everyone remembers what you were wearing, but you don't remember what anyone else was wearing? When we let go of that, suddenly things that we want to do become easier because we don't feel like we have eyeballs on us in the way we think we do.
1: Help the person who's wants to get started break through from zero to beginning.
0: Well... The end point, which hopefully you never reach because, you know, you always want to be pushing yourself beyond. But what I say is whatever you sort of dream for yourself, whatever the goal is, first of all, you've got to keep it um, open in terms of what it's going to look like at the end. You know, I meet people who I'm going to write a book, you know, and it's going to be a novel and it's going to be about this. And that's great. But if and the process of writing it, it becomes a play or a novella or it becomes a song or a poem, you know, or it becomes not a book at all. And suddenly you discover you're a magazine writer, all of those things can happen. So I, I tell people pick a point on the horizon, but don't make it very you know specific, just like, I'm going to head in that direction. So if you want to become the gardener, let's say you want to have a vegetable garden in your backyard, imagine that as your horizon. I'm going to become a gardener and I'm going to grow things in my backyard. And then recognize that the journey to that horizon is a thousand tiny steps and everyone can take a tiny step. You know, you probably can take five tiny steps in a day, you know? So if you, if, if it's the garden that you're planning to do, maybe your first tiny step is like, just figure out where it's going to be. Put down four stakes. Good job. You're done. You, you made progress, you know, and then set a goal for tomorrow. So tomorrow I'm going to buy a shovel, you know, like it is a thousand tiny steps and allow yourself to take some, but don't, you know, view it as a giant gulp, you know, don't view it as I need to do everything at once. The problem is everyone spends so much time thinking about doing the thing they want to do instead of just identifying steps along the way that they can take today. The reason my book is called Someday Is Today is because everyone assumes that there's going to be another day. I'll get to that someday. And they seem to forget that people get hit by buses all the time. And life ends unexpectedly. It ended twice for me. Thank goodness CPR restored my life. But I did not plan on dying either of those two days. And yet I discovered quickly that that is a reality of the world. So I I identify a point on the horizon, accept the fact that it's a thousand tiny steps, and take one today. That's what I say
1: that's why i love the book and in a bit of irony i was with some friends this morning at breakfast and my friend john was telling me about they have this great neighbor she's only 65 she took her son on some trip they came back she took the dog for a walk went in to take a nap and never woke up now i hope i leave as gently as she did i don't want to have a gun in my head she had all these plans and it never happened
0: yeah and my hope for her is that she was living her life, living each day to its fullest. So, you know, in, in the end, although she didn't get as many days as she wanted, those days that she had were lived well.
1: Well, I'll be honest. John said she had a bunch of things she was always going to do for 20 or 25 years, trips and whatever, and never took them.
0: Yeah, right. It's a tragedy. I, I met a woman. I, I don't know if I tell the story in the book, but I, I was doing a book talk at a nursing home once. And uh, when I was done this lady came up to me and she said, I have a story that's been in me forever and I'm going to start writing it soon. And my wife was standing next to me when this happened. And and I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 87. And I said, well, you better start today because you could die at any moment. And my wife elbowed me and the woman didn't take it kindly, but you know, that was 15 years ago. She is definitely dead today. And you and I both know she didn't write that book Uh, because that is how people live their lives. They live their lives waiting for something to happen, and then they just die instead. It's a a terrible thing, and I, I don't want people to feel that way. I know what it's like at the end of your life or what you think is the end of your life to be consumed with regret, and it is a terrible feeling that I don't want anyone to experience.
1: If you were in that moment again right now, would you have any regrets? And if so, what would they be? I know you want more days, and I want you to have more days and more books but have you transcended that now where because of the things that happened to you, you were so dense it took three times, I wanna point that out, but uh, that you would now, if it happened, you wouldn't have any regrets?
0: I guess the only regrets I would have now would be uh, not watching my children grow up, but that is not something that I can sort of do anything about other than keep myself as healthy as possible and um, you know make sure I'm around for them. But you know in terms of like what I wanted to accomplish in life, you know, I certainly have many many more things I want to accomplish, but you know, if something happened today in terms of my creative work life, I would honestly feel perfectly fine. I I published eight books, I taught 25 years in elementary school, I you know told hundreds, if not thousands of stories on stages all over the world, I feel great about where I am today. I certainly want many, many more opportunities to do all those things. But, but yeah, I, no one has ever asked me that question before. And I feel pretty good about that answer. I feel pretty good that i I don't think I would feel the regret other than the devastation of not seeing my kids sort of, you know, grow up, get married, have kids of their own. That would be the one thing, but I can't do anything about that.
1: What a great answer. I love too, when I pull some question out of nowhere or the ether, or the intuitive internet, and you know, with some guests and it was Jack Canfield was on. I was asking about reincarnation. He paused and he told the truth. He's had all these experiences and he said, no one's asked me and I've never shared it before. And then he was okay with it. I always feel like there are higher forces that connect you and I that guide these interviews and uh, I can hear the joy in your being Of course you want to see your kids grow up, but I love, that's a great litmus test for anyone listening. Uh, Are you living the life that if you left, you sure you'd love to have more time. I feel that way. And I wish, you know, I get more time so I could be more loving and create more love, but I'm not not doing anything that I know of right now because I'm afraid or I don't feel good enough or I need perfection.
0: Yeah, I kind of agree. I, you know, I had this beautiful letter written to me recently by a friend, uh, you know, it's one of those letters. I have like five of them that I keep with me at all times. And uh, she had read Someday Is Today, and uh, she knows me in a deep and powerful way. And she wrote that you know your goal in life, Matt, is to make sure that you are known and remembered, and um, that you had a positive influence in the world. And she said that when she read Someday Is Today, she said you can feel content in knowing that you put something into the world that is one hundred percent you. And that when you are gone, when people read that book, they will know your essence, and that that meant the world to me. So, so yeah, I feel um, work wise, creative wise, you know, I want many, 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 many more days, but um, I'm happy where I am. I've done a good job, I think.
1: What is it about teaching that you love so much? My mom was a teacher. I love teachers, and the fact that you taught elementary school, she used to love her kids. God bless your mama. No, you're listening. What is it that, that you love? You see, I know. What do you love about teaching so much? Uh,
0: well, I mean, I used to say, and this is true. I love kids. Uh, I, I love their honesty, and uh, I love how much fun you can have with them. And that's true. You know, I've always liked the idea of sort of uh, being able to influence the future in a significant way. You know, change the life of a kid, and. I have many of my former students. I never expected this, but many of them are now my friends today. You know, I've officiated the weddings of former students, and, um, you know, they've been at my house, you know, as adults now. All of those things have been really unexpected. You know, when I was asked that question and my wife was present, she also pointed out that I can't stand to be told what to do. And a teacher, you know, there's a, cl- there's a door on the classroom for a reason, you know, you, so that you can close it and do what you want. There's a lot of authority in teaching where you get to make most of the choices, you know, and especially as you move on, you know, now that I've been teaching 25 years, there's a, you know, I get to kind of dictate things that I didn't feel I could dictate in year two and three. So that's good. Uh, but I, I like kids genuinely. I I just enjoy Um, being around children, you know, my wife would also tell you it's a bit of performance every day, you know, the way that I teach at least is I, um, I don't, I don't, I go into every school day and every lesson, assuming no one wants to learn anything, which is not true, but is the correct assumption to have, because there's definitely at least one kid in the room at all times who does not want to learn. And so I treat every lesson. You know as a challenge and every lesson must have a hook you know it has to have a reason for kids to want to learn and when i work with student teachers they have a hard time with this because most teachers were excellent students who love to learn who now want to be teachers so that they can teach those kids but those kids don't need a lot of help if you're an excellent student who wants to learn you know it's not going to be a heavy lift for you you're going to you're going to be okay you know what we need to do is target our lessons to the kids who struggle the kids who don't want to learn the kids who are having difficulty at home that causes them to not be as effective in school and so i always told those student teachers you know you have to have a reason a hook you know and that's not something they're taught in school they're oddly taught or at least they assume that kids want to learn when it's simply not the case and so um my wife points out that that performance aspect of teaching appeals to me as well. And I think she's probably right.
1: And we've all, if we've been lucky, had that one teacher or two that's made a life-changing, humongous difference. And you sound like that kind of teacher.
0: Well, I try to be, you know, I, I, you know, I can't say I do it for every kid and um, some kids don't need me. Some kids come in and you're like, that kid's going to kill it. That kid's going to take over the world, you know, regardless of who they end up with as their teacher. But there there are kids that, you know, I feel very certain that I've made a significant difference. In, and I hear from them, you know, I hear from kids all the time who um, come back or write to me. It's the beauty of the Internet is that, you know, when I was a kid, like Mrs. Schultz, my sixth grade teacher, was enormously important to me. But, you know, once I was in 10th grade and I was able to articulate that, getting a message to Mrs. Schultz, you know, as a 10th grader, or even as a, you know, 25 year old was very difficult. You know, today kids can find me pretty easily. So they, so they do.
1: Matthew, how do we cultivate optimism in a safe field in which to live and work?
0: I am the most optimistic person I know. And it's frustrating for a lot of people. Um, I I was walking through the halls of my school last year and I walked by a colleague and she said, "How are you doing today?" and I said, "I'm great." And she goes, "You're always great." Like, don't you ever have a bad day, you know? For me, you know, it's a lot of sort of perspective taking, I guess, is the way I would say it. You know, I people have recently been very fond of telling me how the world is coming to an end and how these are dark times. And uh, you know, I understand that sentiment. I I truly get why it exists, but What I like to say to them is, like, in 1972, my father was drafted into Vietnam and was forced to fight in a war that was essentially, you know, predicated on a fake incident that took place in the Gulf of Tonkin. While that was happening, the president was, um, you know, being impeached for corruption and children were being shot on you know, on the on the campus of Kent State by National Guards people and the economy was stagnating and would continue to stagnate for a decade. Would my father choose to live in that day or would he choose to live today? You know, I think it's I think it's very common for people to think that their time is the time, the worst time, you know, but all I would have to do is say, let's look at the people of World War Two. Let's go back to be on the West Coast, you know, after Pearl Harbor, assuming that the Japanese were about to be, you know, on our shores. Or go back to being a Japanese American and being forced into into an internment camp in, you know, 1942. Or go back to the Great Depression, you know, and and see what that was like. Or the Civil War. Like I just, I know that these days can be frightening and the world is not ideal. But I think the way I cultivate optimism is I continually remind myself of where I am, where we've come from, and what great fortunes we do have in our lives today and in our world today. And I do genuinely believe that if you continue to take positive steps forward,
1: things do get better. How does one find their passion if they're feeling like they don't know? Because I hear a lot of people, I say, what are you passionate about? And they'll say, I'm not sure, I don't know, which is foreign to me, But obviously, since many people have said this to me, there must be a thing. I don't know if they're cut off from it. The things I suggest are get quiet, turn off the screens, get in nature. I like Julie Cameron's Morning Pages, the three pages. She's been on the show a couple of times, The Artist's Way. I said, just start journaling. I don't care what you're writing. What are some of the things that you would suggest?
0: Well, I'll give you two. One is similar to what you just said. I think what happens in our lives, sort of a tragedy of our lives, is we spend enormous amounts of time thinking about our spouses and partners and children and neighbors and parents and colleagues and clients and customers. We think about a lot of people. And I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves in a real meaningful way. I think as a storyteller, most storytellers tend to be deeply curious about ourselves. So we want to know why we are the way we are, because when we ask that question, we can often find great stories about ourselves to tell. And so as a storyteller, I commit you know, time during my day, like honest to goodness, time where I just ask myself where I where I am and how I am and how did I get here? And am I happy with what I did today and yesterday? And am I happy with my plan for tomorrow? I think all of those questions are questions people don't ask themselves. You know, they wait until their children are grown or until they have a sabbatical or, you know, they retire. I think they need to be asking that question all the time. But the other thing I think is that, you know, there's a whole chapter in my book about the importance of saying yes. I think that people walk around with this ridiculous hubris. They assume that they know what they're going to like and what they are going to be good at and what is going to be good for them. And so when someone, you know, offers them an opportunity or when they see a neighbor doing something that they've never done before or their partner suggests that maybe they should try something new they automatically assume that they're not going to like it or they're not going to be good at it. My philosophy is always when someone asks you to do something or affords you an opportunity, you say yes, regardless of how you feel about it, because a yes, can always become a no if it's not working out. But if you don't open the door to begin with, you don't understand what's on the other side. And so many times in my life, someone has asked me to do something that I absolutely did not want to do and had no earthly desire to do. But I forced myself to say yes, knowing that yeses can become nos and oftentimes doors that, you know, are not opened, you know, remain mystery, mysterious to us. And so, so many times that has happened to me where I've avoided the hubris of thinking that I might know what the future is. I say yes. And remarkable things happen. I discover passions that I did not think I could have, did not think existed in this world. I think that that is a tragedy that happens to us. And the, and that is both questions that are asked to us from other people, but also questions we can ask ourselves. So that when we see our neighbor, you know, suddenly taking up paddleboarding and we look at it and go, well, that looks ridiculous. Instead, we say, well, could I like paddleboarding as much as my neighbor. I should maybe... Give it a try, even though I don't think I'm going to like it, and it looks really stupid. You should treat life the same way you treat food. Many, many times in our lives, someone offers us food that does not look appealing, and we taste it, and we discover it's far better than we ever imagined. Life is the same way. Uh, We're not going to like everything that we try, but we should try everything.
1: You know what I love is that you cast this infinitely wide net of yes, creativity hey whatever you love if you want to garden you want to become a great cook be great at crossword puzzles just do what you love give yourself permission and and give it all you got what a what a great message no wonder why your uh work is resonating with everybody i love it you
0: you also will just um you'll just have a wider life is the word i like to use you know um I'm always looking at the next thing. And oftentimes these things sort of work in concert with each other in remarkable ways. You know, I, I become a wedding DJ because my buddy asks me to become a wedding DJ. And even though I don't want to be a wedding DJ, I say yes, because that's what I do. And I have a 25 year career as a wedding DJ, which turns out to be enormously beneficial when I take a stage for the first time and begin telling stories, because it turns out I've been speaking to audiences extemporaneously for more than 10 years when I take that first stage. And as a result, I am not nervous and I speak with an incredible facility and, and fluidity because i have been doing it for so long. I didn't know that becoming a wedding DJ would lead to me becoming a champion storyteller, which would lead to me, you know, teaching marketing to fortune 100 companies like these, these dots that we connect in our lives. You have to have dots to connect. You have to say yes to things that you're not quite sure you know, will land or turn out well, but you have to say yes in order to be able to start connecting those things.
1: I am living a life of yes. How does the listener have the inner courage to say yes to life? And of course, I want to say the obvious caveat with boundaries. If somebody asked me if I wanted to do heroin, I would say no, but I'd be saying yes to health and staying clear. But how, do, how does one cultivate A life of yes, uh, a way of moving through the world in a flow of yes.
0: Well, I mean, unfortunately, one of the things you have to do is you have to just do it. You know, oftentimes I say you can watch a thousand people go off the high dive. But when you get up there, you know, 12 feet above the water, just because you've watched a thousand people do it safely doesn't mean that that first time isn't going to be scary for you it might be a little less scary because you've seen a thousand people survive but you will still have a hard time making that leap the first time and that's frankly the case so often you know the 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 the, the alternative is essentially you don't do anything and and you die unhappy so you know the alternative is not a good one But people, again, assume that, well, someday I'll go off the high dive and then suddenly they can't anymore. The other thing, you know, in terms of cultivating that yes is you can find partners to help you along the way. So, you know, if you want to suddenly go paddle boarding because you've noticed your neighbor is doing it and they seem to like it, even though you think it looks really stupid, find a friend and say, hey, there's a thing called paddle boarding and uh, I want to try it, even though I don't think I'm going to like it, but will you try it with me? So sometimes having someone else alongside you, you know, helping you along the way can be enormously helpful. And there's so many people in the world, so many people who are just waiting for someone to ask them to do something. It's a beautiful thing to reach out to someone and say, hey, I want to try a new thing. Will you try it with me? Um, You will get a lot of yeses because it's easier to do something in concert with someone else. So, so find a partner, but also accept the fact that it's scary, but you know, I wrote in one of my novels that the hard thing and the right thing are almost always the same thing. So um you have to remind yourself that if you want to do good things, oftentimes it's there's some difficulty along the way.
1: Isn't that what makes them so valuable?
0: Yeah. I I think the tragedy is that people live lives of least resistance. You know, they tend to lead lives like water flowing down a mountain you know, being guided by the opinions and judgment of others and the sort of the dictates of society and the norms of their community. And I think the people that we remember and the people that do great things are the ones that lead lives of greatest resistance. They're the ones who forge new trails and, you know, strike out new ground. And and that's not an easy thing, but you don't want to be at the end of your life looking back and realizing that most of your decisions were not really decisions at all, but just sort of nudges by the world that landed you in a place you didn't really wanna be.
1: And so much of the fear and the worry we have never leaves the confines of our head. It never happens.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, we, we, we live in our heads and, and that does make sense. You know, as a storyteller, I always say that most of the stories that I tell about significant moments in my life If you were watching me during this moment of great significance, you wouldn't even know it was happening because most of the meaningful transformations and realizations, the changes of our lives happen inside us, not on the outside. You know, most real stories are not about car chases and bear attacks and, you know, all of these things. They're mostly like suddenly I see the world in a different way. But if you were watching me, you would just think I was standing there doing nothing when really, you know, there's fireworks going off in my head. And so we live in our heads, which makes a lot of sense, but we got to get out of our heads and into the world in order to actually do things that are meaningful.
1: How much do you absolutely love what you do? I can hear it. I can read it. But I could just say you're overjoying with the life you're living.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty good. I, you know, I'm struggling right now with uh, with the notion of continuing to teach versus doing all these other things that I have opportunities to do. You know, um, if I didn't love teaching, I would have not been teaching a long time ago you know my my money people tell me i lose money every time i go to school because i could be just doing better in these other endeavors but i like kids a lot so you know i do have this bit of a struggle the joy of teaching is once you commit to a school year though you have to really be a monster to leave halfway through so you know i've committed to another school year and that sort of sweep you know sweeps that off the table for me for a year so i get to teach um You know what will be my 25th year but um that is really the only struggle i have right now is um you know what to take off the table so i can do other things it's a hard thing for me to do
1: well since your money people are telling you one thing i'll be your non-money people do you have enough to eat and shelter and more than enough money at least for now and if so i would then teach since you love it so much and let the money come in right
0: Right. I mean, I love the other things almost as much or as much too. And, you know, as I'm continually reminded, I have two children that are going to be in college theoretically in a few years. And I hear that's not cheap. So um, there's going to come a point where making a pile of money is going to become important as well for the, you know, for the future of my kids and the the future of my retirement. So um, it's just that battle, you know, it's that every day I go to school, I love it, but every day of school, I could be home you know doing something creative and and profiting you know more greatly from it so but that's a that's a beautiful problem to have that is 100% a first world problem that i would never dare to complain about
1: good and let the future take care of itself is what i always say
0: yeah well you know they did some research on um presidents and they were sort of evaluating the decision making process of presidents and what they found was that the presidents who made the best decisions Made decisions at the very last moment, so they accumulated as much information as possible. And oftentimes, the most successful presidents are the ones who did not act. That you know, problems tended to resolve themselves without intervention. And it is when we intervene that we can exacerbate, you know, a problem. So, interestingly enough, you know, inaction can be really um, a positive way to handle a situation. Allow allow the problem to take care of itself.
1: One of my mentors when I worked in the entertainment business said a, often the best deal is no deal.
0: Yeah, right. It's very true. I mean, I expect that like, you know, someday, maybe after the end of this year, my principal will move on to some other school and some significantly less likable human being will take over my school and begin doing things that will cause me to go, okay, the world, the universe has told me that now is the time. And um, I'm sort of hoping for that. I'm sort of hoping that, you know, when that decision time comes, that it is easy for me to make, as opposed to, as opposed to what it would be now, which would be challenging.
1: Wait a minute! The universe will tell me. It turns out you are secretly a spiritual guy. You're busted.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I would like to be. I am. Um. I I, call, I refer to myself as a reluctant atheist. You know, someone who would like to believe in something. You know, greater than what he can see, and I'm still working on that.
1: <laughs> well, before we let you go, would you give a worldwide Soliloquy of inspiration to those listening out there who might be right on the precipice of starting. And now we have the Someday is Today guy. So uh, let those folks uh, hear your words and perhaps that will ignite the last spark needed to start it.
0: Well, the, the thing I start my book with, which is what I think is most important really, is the concept of hope. There was a moment in my life when I was homeless and awaiting trial for a crime I did not commit and was struggling to find enough food to eat in a given day. And it was the closest I had come to sort of losing hope in terms of my life ever being better or, or brilliant someday. And it was the worst. And the loss of hope is it's probably the worst thing because it it stalls, prevents action. So what I tell people is that in order to find hope um, and in order to see it clearly, all it requires is one of those 1,000 steps, you know, one of those tiny steps forward. The belief that tomorrow can be better than today comes through action. It comes through, I changed a small thing. And because I changed a small thing, the world will be better for me tomorrow. Whether that small thing is, I organized my closet. And so now I can find things a little easier. Or I went and bought that shovel for my garden, you know, or, you know, I bought some paint for that, you know, that painting I've always wanted to do. Whatever it is, I just, I think hope comes through action. And the action can be tiny because tiny actions make tomorrow better. So take a tiny action today that will move you forward in a positive way and just start piling them up. You know, the concept of incrementalism that small changes compounded over time produce enormous results is 100% true. And I just don't think people often believe that enough. So start believing it by taking little steps beginning today.
1: You've been listening to the What
0: Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time,
1: stay inspired and in the light.